This morning I thought uh, because so many of you seem to enjoy it and so many of you asked me questions that we would just have a little bit of an open forum and I think there are there some microphones out there somewhere oh good uh, there's one maybe one in the middle one down the aisle great and we just have a little uh, question and answer time we do this uh, I hope a couple times every year uh, just some time in the Word of God that you choose the subject rather than me um, I did this on uh, What's today? Wednesday? Yesterday. <laughs> at the seminary. We had a great time. Just had a question and answer session at the seminary with the students. I, I, I probably do that about once a month with them. We have a great time just going through the Word of God and dealing with the issues that all of us are concerned about. Um, so it's your time. You know, any questions about the Word, any questions about spiritual issues, anything that you're dealing with, uh, any of the mysteries you're trying to unravel, things that I can be of help to you, apply the Word of God in some way, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, the mics are there if you want to use them. If not, I think I can probably hear you and I'll repeat the question. The problem is whether I can see you or not because it's a little dark up here. But this is your time, just a time for Q&A, so whatever's on your heart, I'll do my best to... Uh, to help you with it and don't be embarrassed to ask any question if you don't want to be the one that asked it just say the guy next to you told you to ask this it's his problem and he was afraid to say anything about it so you're asking it on his behalf or whatever anybody who wants to fire first that's a good question John he's asking about Matthew chapter 12 uh, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit uh, I believe that the, the occasion in Matthew chapter 12 of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was a historical event. Um, what happened was, just to summarize it so you don't have to go through the whole text, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders, had been exposed to Jesus Christ fully. They had heard him teach. They had seen his miracles. In other words, as John's Gospel says, there should be no doubt that he was in fact God because of the words that he spoke and the things that he did. No man could do what he did and no man could say what he said unless he was God. So uh, John's thesis in John chapter 20 verse 31, these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it should have been evident to the Jewish leaders that this in fact was the Messiah. After all, he healed people to the degree that he banished disease from Palestine for all intents and purposes. Nobody could even count the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who were healed. And all the things that he did should have given ample manifestation that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. On the other hand, however, the Jews concluded the very opposite of the truth. It was a frankly pretty shocking thing, but what they concluded was this. In verse 24 of Matthew 12, the Pharisees said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. What they said was, Jesus Christ operates in the power of Satan. So, having been exposed to everything, they concluded 180 degrees the opposite from the truth, right? They saw it all, they heard it all, they experienced it all. Some of them probably ate some of the loaves and the fish on the hillside. Some of them probably experienced healings in their own family. Some of them, you know, heard the, the teachings of Jesus Christ, perhaps face to face with him. Their conclusion was that he was satanic. That was 180 degrees from truth. Jesus, in response to that, says, look, if that's your conclusion, you're hopeless. 
Because you have sinned against the Holy Spirit. And here's the sense in which they had sinned against the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his incarnation, you remember, um, humbled himself. The Bible talks about that in Philippians 2, that he took on the form of a servant, thought it not something to hold on to, to be equal with God, gave it up, humbled himself, became a man, a servant, and so forth. And in that humbling process, the theologians call it the kenosis, the self-emptying, in that humbling process, he did two things. He yielded up his divine prerogatives. He didn't give away his divine nature. He didn't dispossess himself of who he was. But he, he restricted the use of his divine prerogatives. And he said this, I will only do what I do according to the will of the Father. And I will only do what I do according to the power of the Holy Spirit. So he became totally a servant. He did the Father's will through the Spirit's power. So to see all that he did and hear all that he said and conclude that he was satanic was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit who was doing it through him. Okay? So in the truest sense, this is a historical event that is not repeatable because Christ is not on the earth and he's not doing the things that he once did. This was, I believe, a unique historical event in which these Jews came to an opposite conclusion and it is, a, it is their problem, their sin, their blasphemy that Jesus is condemning. There is an interesting note um, about this, I think, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And then the verse 3 goes on to say, the thing that makes it so uh, serious to neglect this is God also bearing witness with them in signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, if you reject the truth when it has been accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will, how in the world are you going to escape? It's the same as Hebrews 6. If you've tasted the good word of God and you've tasted the powers of the age to come and you've tasted the heavenly gift and you've been exposed to all of this and you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance because you've rejected full revelation. When you've seen it all, experienced it all, and been exposed to it all and you reject it, you're unsavable. And then when you conclude that it was all done by Satan, you're surely unredeemable. There was no more revelation those people could have possibly had. So I think that's a historical event. Now, I do believe that it is possible still to reject Jesus Christ today, even though he's not here. You can reject his gospel. You can reject his spirit. And you're going to have the same result. But I think that's a historical thing. The thing that damns you now, the thing that is unforgivable now, is the same sin. The sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. But that was simply a, a unique historical occasion in which that sin occurred. I believe today, similarly, there are people who can hear the gospel, hear the story about Christ, see the evidence, look at the word of God, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and conclude that Jesus is satanic. I mean, that could happen today, and that's, that makes them just as unredeemable. But that is a unique thing. And sometimes you'll hear people in the charismatic movement say that if you tell them their speaking in tongues is wrong, or if you deny them their manifestation of the Holy Spirit or their vision or their prophecy or something, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and you're in danger of damnation. That is not at all what this text is talking about. 
And that's a misapplication of it for their own purposes, which are not right. Okay? Good question, John. Anybody else? Yes? So you're asking the question uh, about the Mormons saying that there will be a second chance for everyone who rejects Christ in this life. There will be some time in the future after they have died when Jesus will come and preach the gospel to them. And they're based that on 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, right? Okay, let's look at this text. The rest of you can open your Bible in any language you like. 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's see if we can't find out what exactly is in this chapter and what it's saying. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. You have to put this in its proper frame, in its proper context. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, who is Christ, for the unjust, who is the sinner, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, or rather, uh, I should say, in his Spirit. Um, I'll explain that to you in a minute. Now, what it's saying in verse 18 simply points you to the cross. Christ died, you can see that, the just, that is the righteous one for those that are unrighteous. He did it to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was alive in his spirit, spiritually alive. Now, all that is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, his body died, but his spirit lived, okay? Obviously, his spirit couldn't die. Why? Because he's God, and God is what? Eternal God who cannot die. So his spirit did not go out of existence, didn't die. In fact, nobody's spirit dies. Even when your body dies, your spirit lived. Even he lives. Even when an unbeliever's body dies, his spirit lives and goes on into eternity. So he was put to death in the flesh, but he was alive in his spirit. His body was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning, a portion of those three days and nights. His spirit, where was it? Where, where was he? Where did he go? What did he do? We get an answer, verse 19. It says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, several things are important here. First of all, he made proclamation. That is not the verb euangelizo, which means to preach the gospel. That is not the verb euangelizo, to preach the gospel. It is the, it is the verb keruso which means to proclaim, to announce, to herald, to make a pronouncement, to make a proclamation, to pronounce a, a triumph. So first of all, the verb here does not lend itself to believing that, they, that Jesus went somewhere and preached the gospel. That is not the verb for preaching the gospel. It is the verb for making an announcement. To whom did he make an announcement? He made an announcement to spirits. Spirits. How do we know who these spirits are? Because it says they are spirits who are in prison. Now that poses the question about who these spirits are who are in prison. And we get the answer in verse 20. These are spirits who were disobedient. Disobedient spirits. Hmm. So we now know that they are not redeemed spirits. They are not the spirits of redeemed people they are the spirits of the disobedient what disobedient people or persons 
Well, they were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing, but let me simply say all he's saying is these were spirits who are now in prison, who once were disobedient prior to the time of the flood. A pre-flood group of spirits who were put in a prison. Hmm. Now, who are these pre-flood spirits put in prison? It certainly isn't referring to a whole bunch of human beings who've been dying all through the ages and are now going to get a second chance in the first place. It doesn't say he preached the gospel. In the second place, it says exactly to whom he made the proclamation, and that is to spirits, not just all spirits, but the spirits of some very specific individuals who were disobedient in a period of time prior to the flood. Not throughout all of human history, but only one specific period of time. You say, what spirits would these be? Go back to Genesis chapter 6, and let's find out. The flood starts to unfold at about this time, because... Verse 3, the Lord says, Genesis 6, 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. That first part, my spirit will not always strive for man. God says his patience does have a limit. Remember now, First Peter 3 said, God did display patience. How long did he allow Noah to build that boat? How long? Remember? 120 years. So for 120 years, Noah was building a boat in the middle of the desert where there wasn't any water. Now, you know that generated conversations with people. And during that period of time, God was patiently proclaiming the coming judgment. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the New Testament says. So for 120 years, he built a boat. Everybody that came by said, why are you building a boat? And his answer was, because it's going to rain. They said, what is rain? There had never been any rain. What are you talking about? He said, well, the sky's going to drop water. And they laughed and said, the man has lost his mind. And he said, no, God is going to judge. He's going to drown all who do not turn to him and believe in him. He preached that message for 120 years. How many people believed him? Nobody except his wife and his three kids and their wives. But God was patient in that time. Now, what precipitated God's judgment was not only the wickedness of men on the earth, but notice in verse 4. He talks about um, Nephilim giants who were on the earth in those days and also afterward in this one when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them and those children were the mighty men who were of old men of renown now here you have a fascinating thing the sons of God cohabitate with the daughters of men and they produce mighty men what is this what is this? Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? Well, the daughters of men are human women, and I believe the sons of God were angels. They are so designated numerous times in Scripture. I think what you have here, now follow this, is angels who have the capability to take on human form. We know that. Hebrews 13 says, be careful how you treat strangers. You might be entertaining, what? Angels unawares. 
We know that angels can take on human form. Jacob wrestled with an angel, and we know that angels appeared on many occasions. God came to visit Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, and he brought two angels with him, and they sat down and ate dinner. So angels can take on human form. What you have here are some angelic beings, obviously fallen angels, because they went in and cohabited with the daughters of men. This would be kind of a Rosemary's baby thing. And the product of this union of, of a demon-possessed human body and a, and a woman was to produce some kind of hybrid. And just to give you a little uh, further insight into this, my thinking is that Satan was endeavoring to create an unredeemable race of demon men that could not be redeemed by the God-man. Because the human line had been polluted with demonic life, they would therefore be unredeemable because God had planned no redemption for demons. Satan had a strategy, and he had these sons of God, that's a term for angels, even though they were fallen, they were originally created as sons of God and, and designated as such. He had these, Satan had the sons of God taking on some human form, go in, cohabitating with women, producing some kind of hybrid, unredeemable being. And the Lord decided, along with the wickedness of everybody else on the earth and this particular situation, that He just drowned all of them. And that's what precipitated the flood. Now, I want you to turn back to the New Testament. And I need to take a little time to answer this so you get the full thrust. Now go back to 1 Peter, chapter 3, and and follow this. It says that the Lord, in His Spirit, when His body was in the grave, went and made a proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who were disobedient, when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah. So I think this is talking about the same beings, the spirits who were disobedient prior to the flood in the days of Noah. And now I want to take you a little bit further. Uh, I want to take you to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want you to notice in 2 Peter chapter 2... Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now stop there for a moment. All right. God took some angels who sinned, some fallen angels, cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now let me ask you a question. Are all fallen angels in hell? Are they? How do we know they're not? Because they're running loose all over the world, aren't they? Okay, so this is a special group. Certain angels who fell and then sinned and were cast into hell and thrown into pits of darkness where they are reserved until the time of judgment. Who are these angels? Verse 5. Notice the context. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, etc., etc. Oh, that's interesting. 
Notice how the verse five, verse four says there were angels who sinned, who were thrown into hell and kept in the pit until judgment. And it occurred near the time of Noah. You see the parallel with Genesis? Now I want to take you to one other. Jude, the little epistle of Jude next to the last book in the New Testament. And we get a further insight. Verse 6 says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, or who did not keep their own estate, in other words, who did not stay within their own context, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And Jude comments on the same thing. Certain angels who left the angelic dimension entered into something that wasn't their proper abode were then put in everlasting chains waiting for judgment. I think that explains what happened in Genesis 6. Angels stepped out of the angelic realm, stepped into the human realm, cohabitated with women, produced unredeemable offspring. God drowned them all along with the rest of the unrighteous world. There is then, even now, a pit of darkness in which these spirits are imprisoned and they are bound there in everlasting chains. Now, with that in mind, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, it says Jesus, in his spirit, while he was alive spiritually, though his body was in the grave, went and made a proclamation to the spirits now imprisoned. The very spirits who were disobedient left their proper estate, left their proper abode during the time that God was waiting in the days of Noah, etc., etc. Now we know who he went to talk to. He went to talk to those bound spirits. Why? Why? Down to verse 22, 1 Peter 3, 22. Because Jesus wanted, before he ascended to the right hand of God and went into heaven, to make sure the angels and the authorities and the powers, those are names for the demonic order, had been subjected to him. Now let me give you the simple understanding. Colossians 2 tells basically the same story. His body's in the grave. His spirit descends into the pit. His spirit descends into the prison, Tartarus, if you want the Greek. His spirit goes down where the chained demons are. They were chained there way back in Genesis 6 when they tried to pollute the human stream and create an unredeemable race. There are others who have been thrown in there through the years. Remember when Jesus cast all those demons out of the demoniac in Gadara and the demons said, don't send us where? To the pit. That pit is full of bound demons. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, you can believe that the whole demonic world was excited and thrilled and ecstatic and saying, he's conquered, he's dead, he's dead, we've won, we've won. And in the middle of the party in the pit, Jesus showed up. 
And he announced to them that they had lost. You can imagine what a shock that was as they were celebrating the death of Jesus and he arrived. Verse 15 of Colossians 2 says, At the time of his being nailed to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. So I, I believe that, that what Peter is talking about here is the fact that Jesus, at the time of his death, descended into the pit and made his triumphal statement over demons. You see, you say, well, why would he do that? Well, you have to understand, there is a cosmic warfare going on that you and I are really not a part of. There is a battle going on between God and Satan. Remember last year, I think it was, we did a series on spiritual warfare. There's a battle going on between God and Satan, between Christ and Satan. There's a battle going on between holy angels and fallen angels. And in that whole dimension of warfare, uh, God is very concerned to make his triumph known. And so Christ went into that place and made clear his triumph. So we find then at the cross, not only does Jesus Christ triumph over sin on behalf of us, but he triumphs over demons and he makes sure that that announcement is made to them. Now down in chapter 4 verse 6 you asked about the question the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead. All that means is that the gospel was preached to people when they were alive and now they're dead. That's all. Okay? That's a long answer but I hope it that helps. All right. You got into a discussion with who? Okay. Uh huh. Sure, sure, sure. It's nothing to it. <laughs> First of all, uh, let me let me make a premise. Okay, the Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, it speaks the truth. Right. Okay, therefore, whatever the Bible says, we believe, right? Therefore, we all believe in election. All of you believe in election. All of you believe in predestination. Because the Bible says we were predestined in Him before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that we are elect. We are called the elect again and again and again. The Bible says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the world began. The Bible says that that we did not choose Him, He chose us. The Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore a dead man can make no response to living truth. You can stick a pin all you want in a corpse and it won't react. So you all believe in election. Everybody believes in election who believes the Bible. The Bible teaches that. He mentioned Ephesians chapter 1, and it's said as clearly as it could possibly be said in that place. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In other words, He wanted us to be to the praise of His glory, so He determined that we would come to Christ. He determined that we would come to Christ by His elective grace. It had nothing to do with us. 
We are elect. That's clear in the scripture. You say, yeah, but we are elect according to foreknowledge. That's right. What is foreknowledge? It's not just God knowing something before it happened. That's not it. Foreknowledge means to predetermine. A predetermination. In other words, the word know doesn't mean simply, I know who you are. It means I have an intimate relationship with you. It says that uh, Mary was pregnant, great with child, and she had never known her husband. It doesn't mean she didn't know his name. It means they never had an intimate relationship. Back in the Old Testament, it talks about the, the Cain knew his wife and she bore a son. Well, it doesn't mean he knew her name. It means they had an intimate relationship. Jesus said, my sheep know me. I know them. Jesus said, depart from me. I have never known you. And so know in the Bible is an intimate relationship. Foreknowing is a predetermined intimate relationship. So when it says he chose you on the basis of his foreknowledge, it means he predetermined to have an intimate relationship with you and therefore he has come to elect you. So we believe that. We are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The Scripture is very clear on that. And in the book of Acts, you read uh, the Lord saying to Paul, I have much people in that city. And what He was saying was that there are many elect there who aren't redeemed. Get in there and get them. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you and ordained you. Whom the Lord has chosen, He calls. Whom He calls, He justifies. Whom He justifies, He glorifies. Romans 8. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I've lost none of them. No man comes unto me except the Father, what? Draw him. All of those things teach election. All of those things teach sovereign salvation. And so the question comes, well, what about volition? Don't I have a choice? Absolutely. Absolutely you have a choice. In fact, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, How oft I would have gathered you as a hen gathereth her brood, but you would not. Jesus said, You will not come to me that you might have life. Jesus said, If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins, and where I go, you can never come. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, whosoever will, let him come. In Isaiah chapter 55, whoever wants to come and buy milk and wine, come without money, without price, the free gift of salvation. Jesus said, if you don't believe in him, you'll go to hell, and you'll go to hell because of your unbelief, not because you weren't elected. The Bible teaches both of those things. You say, how do you harmonize those things? I can't. I can't harmonize those things. They appear to me to be mutually contradictory, don't they to you? The point is this, if you go to heaven, it's because you were chosen before the foundation of the world. If you go to hell, it's because you didn't believe. You say, that doesn't seem reasonable to me. Well, that's true. It doesn't seem reasonable to me. It seems like a paradox, an apparent one, and it is to me. But I shouldn't be too surprised by that. Because why should I assume that what God fully understands, I can also fully understand, right? I can hardly understand what my teacher understands. I can hardly understand what I should understand. How could I ever imagine that what is fully comprehensible to the mind of God is not necessarily clear to me? I should be able to accept that. Let me give you an illustration. Ask you a simple question. You mentioned Romans. Who wrote Romans? You're sure? Paul wrote Romans. Can we bank on that? Anybody have another view? God wrote Romans. All right, there's two views. 
Paul and God, did they alternate verses? God, you take one, I'll take one. We'll just go back and forth and we'll get this thing done. Let me ask you a question. Is every word in the book of Romans from the mind of God? Yes. Inspired by God, every word, every jot, every tittle. Is every word in the book of Romans out of the heart and passion and mind and vocabulary and experience of Paul? Yes. How can that be? How can it be all God and all Paul? Paul looks like he's a robot. He's just a mechanical arm. No, it's him, it's his passion, it's his heart, and yet every word is God's word. How can that be? I don't know. Let me ask you another question. Who is Jesus Christ? God? How many of you think he's God? Good. (laughs) You're right. How many of you think he's man? How can that be? How can you be 200% of something? How can you be all God and all men? That's another apparent paradox. Let me ask you another question. You're saved by faith, right? Is that true? But your salvation is completely an act of God. And you're dead in trespasses and sins, so how can you believe? How can you believe what you can't comprehend? How can you overcome your total depravity to do anything that is good, even believe which is good? How can you believe on the one hand and yet at the same time know that salvation is all an act of God and yet come to the conclusion that though it's an all, all an act of God, if I don't do it, if I don't believe, I'll be damned. How can you harmonize those two? I'll ask you another question. Who lives your Christian life? Who lives your Christian life? Take a guess. You only got two choices. Who is it? You? Is it you? Well, yeah. I uh, I beat my body to bring it into subjection. First Corinthians nine. Uh, I crucify the flesh. I I cleanse myself from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. I I read my Bible. I pray. I I mean, I, it takes everything I am to live this Christian life. So it's all you, right? No. You have the people, those are the pietists. The quietists, the historical quietists say, no, it's let go and let God. It's not I, but Christ. This is the deeper life stuff. This is the stuff you get from uh, the Keswick background, the Ian Thomas, the John Hunter, the, the, what's his name, um, Somebody, George, I can't think of, Bob George is pumping out all this stuff nowadays, uh, where you just let go, you just kill yourself, and God does it all. And then the other people who say, no, you do it all, it's work, it's effort, it's discipline. Which is it? Well, Paul had it figured out. He said this, I am crucified with Christ. So you assume, well, it couldn't be him, because he just got crucified. Then he says, nevertheless, I live. It is him. It's, it's me. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. He didn't know either. See, even when he, even when he was inspired, he didn't know. You see, what I'm trying to drive at is in every, as John Murray says, in every major doctrine in Christianity, there is an apparent paradox that the human mind does not resolve. That shouldn't disturb you. 
Because what that tells you is that God has a superior mind. And what is completely comprehensible to Him may be incomprehensible to you. And the frightening thing would be that if you could figure everything out, then God would have a mind like you. Isn't that frightening? I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a God who has a mind superior to my own. One of the great truths in the Scripture is the fact that there are these incomprehensible paradoxical realities. And what that tells us is that this book was not written by men because if it had been, some editor would have fixed all those. Some human would have resolved them all. It's one of the great proofs of the inspiration of Scripture. So we believe in those things, and we have to hold them in the tension of human ignorance and say with Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord. I can't know everything. But I'll tell you this. Whatever happens of good is God, and whatever happens of evil is me, right? We just have to hold that intention. Yes, we believe in election. Yes, we believe in predestination. But we also know that people are sent to hell because they do not believe. Romans 9 sums it up this way. There are vessels prepared for glory. Active verb, God preparing them. And vessels are prepared for wrath. Passive verb, God is not the one damning people. He is active in preparing vessels unto glory. He is not the one preparing vessels unto wrath. That's a matter of their own unbelief. How that harmonizes is God's problem. I'm content to accept it the way it is in the Bible, preach both, and leave the resolution to Him. Now listen, if you try to find middle ground, you'll destroy both of those. So you leave them there and affirm their truthfulness. Okay? Does God intentionally hurt or harm His children in order to... For them to grow, yes. Yes, God does. Uh, God, I'll, I'll say it as simply as I can and as poignantly as I can, God will even use Satan on you if it produces your spiritual growth. Case in point, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, There was given to me by God, and he acknowledges that, There was given to me by God a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, sent to Literally in the Greek, smash me in the face with face with fists. Go to Second Corinthians twelve. You you just need to see this and it'll answer that question, then I'll I'll hit your second question. But this this text is really good. Second Corinthians twelve. He says, look, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other words, Paul says, I have had so many revelations. I've had so many grand spiritual experiences. By the way, he had seen he had seen the risen, ascended Christ on four occasions, which no one else had ever seen on any occasion. He had four immense personal revelations of the risen, ascended Christ. Because of this, to keep him humble, to keep him from exalting himself, he was given a thorn in the flesh, literally a stake to be driven through his boastful flesh. He says it is a messenger of Satan. I believe it was a human being energized by Satan himself. 
to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So he says, three times I asked the Lord to take it away, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What was God saying to him? This messenger from Satan that's bantering you and bashing you and driving a stake through your human flesh is humbling you, and humbling you is important because when you are weak, then my power flows. So God will do that unquestionably. In Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter this. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has desired to have you. Satan has desired to have you. And you can just hear Peter saying, well, Lord, you sure told him no, didn't you? And the Lord says, no, I told him yes. I told him, go ahead, have Adam. And when you are turned around, you'll strengthen the brethren. The Lord allowed Satan to have at Peter to try to destroy his faith because when he knew when Peter passed the test, he'd be able to strengthen others. One day Satan went into heaven and Job and he said to God, I want, I want to go after somebody and prove saving faith isn't permanent. He said, go after Job. God actually allowed Satan to destroy everything around Job. Took away everything he possessed. Personal disease, calamity upon calamity, and when it was all over, what was the result of it? Job said, I had heard of you with the hearing of mine ear, now my eye sees you, I repent in dust and ashes. The end result, he knew God, and he was a humble man. So yes, God will use Satan, demons, any difficulty in life to produce his own spiritual purposes. First Peter 5.10, one more you need to know because it takes it out of the satanic realm and puts it in a more general realm says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So the perfecting process is a process of trouble. James 1, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience, and patience has a perfecting work. Okay? Is emotional sickness a spiritual problem and what can be done for it? I'm not sure that emotion, um, emotional sickness is a, I'm not sure what you mean by the term. Okay, like a nervous breakdown. Um, ultimately for a Christian, it is a spiritual problem in the sense that Christ is sufficient for everything. Um, if you were in Job's situation, you would probably say, here's a man who had a whole family, all his children died. Here's a man who had a massive fortune. It was all taken away from him. Here was a man who had physical health and he became sick and his body was covered with ulcerated sores. Here was a man who had close friends and his close friends gave him a bunch of nonsense and gave him bad advice and told him the wrong answers to every question he asked. Here was a man who was reduced, here was a man who was reduced to dirt in every sense. And you would have to conclude that if there was anyone justified in having a mental breakdown, it would have been Job. Right? All right. But he said this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He never deviated from his faith. Why? Because he was an upright, righteous, blameless, godly person. And so I would answer your question by saying this. Where you have a godly, mature Christian... The resources of Christ are being applied to that individual's life and are substantial enough for any difficulty. Any difficulty. When we fall and when we cave in and when we collapse under pressure, it is evidence that we have not learned how or we choose not to apply the resources that are ours in Christ. 
Okay? All right. Okay. This will be maybe our last question. You have one more? Okay. After this one. Go ahead. <laughs> How come I didn't? Um, I don't know. We have so many days to uh, to go through the year uh, to finish the coursework we have to do, so we have to be selective about that. But I can't answer the question. Let me speak to the bigger issue about Martin Luther King. Can I for a minute? Because I appreciate you asking the question. Um, the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, I happened to be in Memphis. And I went up on the steps of the motel. You've probably seen pictures of that motel platform and stood there and the bloodstains were still pretty fresh where he was shot when he came out of the door. I went all across the alley in the back where the restroom was where uh, James Earl Ray got up on the toilet. There was, a, there was a toilet. It was a filthy old dilapidated building. And he stood up on the toilet and he put the gun through the, this little tiny window that was on the back of it. And that's where he shot him. And I went in there and I climbed up on the toilet and saw the situation. Um, I was with a group of black people. I was with John Perkins. I had been with Charles Evers for several weeks. Charles Evers was the brother of Medgar Evers. You probably remember Medgar Evers was the first martyr to the movement. Medgar Evers um, um, was killed when, when the, the first movement started to happen. And uh, Charles is his brother. Uh, Charles was the first black mayor in the South, Fayetteville, Mississippi. I had been down there for a number of years in a row ministering in black churches and black schools. I had, uh, I had gotten thrown in jail. I had gotten, uh, uh, because we were preaching in the black schools and everybody was uptight about everything. And so we had one of these heat of the night sheriffs who hauled us in the jail and threatened to take our clothes off and whip us. And In fact, he called us white niggers. It was really a very hostile time there. I happened to be in downtown Jackson, Mississippi, talking to Charles Evers. Um, about the whole thing and what was happening in the black movement at that time when King was assassinated and all of downtown Jackson broke loose. So I was there at the very heart of that whole thing and I got in on many, many fascinating and significant conversations. And I want to tell you one of them that I think you need to know that you may never hear in your lifetime. I thank God personally that Martin Luther King was a pacifist. Because if he had not been a pacifist, if God in his sovereignty had allowed a Rap Brown, a Stokely Carmichael, a Malcolm X, or anybody like that to lead that movement, we'd have had a civil war and a bloodbath in the United States. And we can be very thankful that Martin Luther King was a pacifist. He had tremendous power to move people with his speech, and he also had a just cause. No one would argue the injustice of what was going on in the South. I lived on the other side of it. I lived on the black side of it. Because I was ministering to black people down there for a period of, off and on of about six years. Many of them came here to this school. We sent many of the best students here. Dolphus Weary, uh, Jimmy Walker, and, and others from down there to this school when it was many, many years ago. Um, but anyway, so I was in the middle of all of that and getting it from that side. There was a pastor of a church. We were in uh, Mendenhall, Mississippi, staying there in the home of John Perkins, uh, who's a well-known black uh, Christian leader. And there was a local pastor there who was a Baptist pastor, just to tell you how bad the situation was. This guy was a white guy. It was the First Baptist Church of uh, Mendenhall. And he had a custodian in the church who was a precious, godly guy. 
And he just loved this man. He was a black man. And so they started, he started to disciple this man. Personally meet with him uh, each day and they'd study the word and he'd pour his heart into this guy. The church leaders came to him and said, you stop that now or you're fired. They told the pastor that. The pastor, back to the question I was just asked, was so uptight, so distressed, it broke his heart. In the town, he couldn't buy groceries. They wouldn't sell him food in the grocery store. They wouldn't sell him gas at the gas station. They canceled his insurance policy. They wouldn't let, they taunted his children at school. It reached the point where he had, uh, he got sick. He had a nervous breakdown. They took him to the hospital in Jackson. He was in there two days. The third day, he dove out of the third story window and killed himself. That's the kind of pressure that was being exerted by white people to keep that thing in check. So, from my standpoint, the the cause was noble and the cause was just. And I, as I said, I can only be thankful that Martin Luther King was a pacifist. I, I, I am convinced that he was not a Christian, honestly. Because I've read and I don't see a clear cut understanding of the gospel and theology. But I am thankful to the Lord that he was a pacifist and that he brought about. He affected, in many cases, just cause. And I'm grateful for that. But when he died, back to that situation, when he died, and this is right out of the mouth of Charles Evers, whose own brother was the first martyr, he told me something I will never forget. He said to me, John, I want to tell you something, and you, you may not understand this. He said, it does, it is not, how can I say this? It is not a major issue that Martin Luther King has died. Charles Evers told me that. I said, I, I, I find that. And he was, he was sh- visibly shattered because this was a traumatic thing. He said, I don't mean that personally. He's a great man and he went on with that. But he said he made a fatal mistake. And this is what he told me. He said, first of all, when Martin Luther King started the black cause in the South, the, the march, the marches started and they were black people marching. And then you remember... All of a sudden, white people started flying in from all over the country. Remember that? And getting in the marches. And Charles Evers said to me, he said, they polluted the cause. He said, what those white guys wanted, I'll be real honest with you, was black women. And he said, those, they brought drugs and they brought sex. And those marches turned into things that we began to hate. And then he said this, and what that did was give rise to Stokely Carmichael, Rap Brown, Malcolm X. Remember John Carlos and those guys at the Olympics with the black fists? What became known as Black Power Movement, which was, get out of here, whitey. And it started because they, they saw these kids didn't carry the passion that they carried. They weren't the abused. They were these yuppie kids coming from all over the country looking for some action. And it wasn't even legitimate. And so he said, you know, that corrupted our young people. That corrupted our cause. That got them all entangled with white um, materialism. And that's what gave rise to the whole black power movement, which in effect said, get out. And he said, we got it cleaned up. And then he said, a terrible thing happened. And that was the Democratic Convention. The Democratic Convention, remember that in 1960 in Chicago? He said, um, Martin Luther King got up, and this is just a little bite of history you'd never get. Martin Luther King got up, and in a speech he made in the 1960 convention, he identified with the peaceniks, 
and he identified with the anti-Vietnam crowd. And Charles Everett said, we immediately had a meeting and we said that everybody we got out of the movement in the black power deal, he just put back in. You understand what I'm saying? He sucked up all those same people with their own political agenda back into the whole movement. And he said, from the standpoint of the leaders of the black movement, Martin Luther King had passed his time of usefulness. Charles Evers told me that. I don't say that to condemn King. I say that to give you a little piece of history so that you will understand that... I'm very close to that. I feel very much a part of that whole movement of history. I, I feel very sympathetic to all of it. I felt very sympathetic to Charles Evers' struggle and the fact that Martin Luther King, in the end of his life there, got influenced by all kinds of causes they felt that diluted his power in their cause. But for what he did do, I think America should continue to be grateful because I think he brought about the kind of the kind of revolution that brought, that brought just, justice to oppressed people and minimized the potential for terrible trauma across this country. And I have great respect for that, and I do believe that the powers of be are ordained of God, and I believe that God was behind the scenes letting that happen to bring about the things that have occurred in this country. So I want you to know that I have respect for him and his contribution to history, and the fact that we don't celebrate... Um, that particular day in any in any way by dismissing classes doesn't mean that you're not permitted to have uh, the kind of feelings and attitudes that you want to have toward toward his role and his place in history okay thank you for asking the question uh, people uh, sometimes assume um, the wrong thing I feel that's a long answer to a short question but I feel very strongly about the, the rights of black people, I, because I was there, because I was in jail, because I was there when they shoved a fork up John Perkins' nose, and I saw it at the worst. So I understand some of that, and um, and I hope we all have the same kind of sensitivities to that. Okay, good. Let's have prayer. We'll stand up for a closing prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to discuss your word. We just pray that you'll help us, Lord, to, to follow your will and to be the kind of people you want us to be. Let Jesus Christ be the focus of our life. May we learn Christ. May not a day go by that we don't learn something more about Christ in order that we might emulate it in our own lives. And we'll thank you. Bless every person here, Lord, and make them fruitful this day as they love and serve you. In the Savior's name, amen.